Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. As always, a reminder that An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. I've been a member of New Deal for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now on the board of supervisors for Santa Cruz County. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. We've got a great show for you today. Former Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs. No doubt you've heard about his efforts to create universal basic income. Or maybe you saw his TED Talk where he shared his personal story. Growing up in poverty in Stockton with his father in prison, graduating from Stanford, and then returning home to run for city council at the age of 22 when his cousin was killed by gun violence. He was the first black man to be elected mayor of Stockton and the youngest mayor of a major city in the United States. He's been featured in not one, but two documentaries. What you may not know about Michael is that he did all this while helping Stockton to emerge from bankruptcy, significantly reducing gun violence and raising tens of millions of dollars for his city. We talk about his journey, what motivates him, the disinformation campaign that sunk his reelection, and his political future. It's a good one. Enjoy. Michael Tubbs, welcome to An Honorable Profession. I'm really excited to be talking to you today. Thank you so much for having me. I have a lot of policy and politics I want to talk with you about, but you know, in looking at your biography, you've been achieving, overcoming, serving at a frenetic pace, and you're only 30 years old. Are you tired? How do you keep up the energy to, to serve at the pace at which you've been, you've been doing it for so many years? In terms of energy, I think for me, it doesn't feel like work. It feels like I would be doing even if it wasn't a title or a profession. It's just like what I would, it's what I want to do. So it's really I can't think of really doing anything else but but doing the things I'm able to do. So sometimes I get tired and then I take a nap, or I play with my son, or I do something different for a little bit. But I think I'm more tired of the things I want to change. Like I'm more tired of inequality. I'm more tired of racism. I'm more tired of disparate outcomes, and I think that's what gives me the energy because I, that stuff is fatiguing to me. Hearing suffering, seeing suffering, seeing things that are working efficiently, that's exhausting. Actually working to fix it gives me energy. I like that, that way to, to take all that negativity and find inspiration in it. Where do you think that, that drive and that outlook comes from? I think it, it definitely comes from sort of faith being born and raised in a black church and every Sunday being reminded that to be a righteous person or to be a, a, a child of God means to kind of push and fight and to create a world where everyone's treated with dignity. And I think also it's my mom. My mom is one of the strongest, most resilient, most hardworking people I've ever seen. And I never heard her make excuses. I've never really heard her complain. And she always just worked to provide for myself and my brother. And I also think it's just lived experiences, like growing up in poverty, growing up with lack, growing up with a father that's incarcerated, giving up or, or, or um, not pushing is, is akin to sort of a, a, a sense of social exclusion 
or, or a social death in many respects. So I think just knowing sort of, even though in 30 years it's not a lot of time, the types of things I've been able um, to overcome, I think, gives confidence for, for the things that have to be overcome in the future. And you've been out of office for a, a little over a month now. Has that given you any perspective on both, you know, the opportunities in politics, but also some of the the challenges? I know it's, you know, you're so, when you're mayor, it's, you're so reactive to the day's events. I'd be interested in your take on whether you've seen any, whether you've gotten a broader perspective now that you've had a chance to take a breath. Yeah, I, 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 I in some respects, I'm just as busy, if not busier, but busy sort of doing things that I want to do and having conversations that I want to have and working on issues that I, I want to work on. And that's just so liberating. I think it's also shown me sort of the importance of government, but government's not the end-all, be-all. So I've been spending a lot of time with sort of emerging technologies and the private sector and other folks like that to get them to understand how government works and how to best sort of leverage government to achieve triple bottom line returns for everyone. But I feel I'm not one of those people that, that I'm not formally in government. It's like government's dumb. I hate government. Like I, I still think there's a role for government, right? And I think that role is because it touches everything at scale. But I also know that because government's about relationships, those relationships stay whether you're in or out of office. So I think for me it's an exciting to kind of leverage those relationships to help government officials who I love connect them to private industry, connect them to foundations, connect them to ideas that they can implement. And it's been, like, for example, on the guaranteed income work, when I was mayor, I could only focus on one city, Stockton, California, and the guaranteed income. Now I'm focusing on 42 cities through marriage for guaranteed income. This morning I was on a press conference with um, the mayor of Gary, Indiana, who started their pilot. Um, just last week, I was on a fundraising call with the mayor of Cambridge, Massachusetts, who wants to do her at Garrison Income Pilot. That same day, I was on a call with the mayor of Pittsburgh. So it's been incredibly exciting to sort of be able to help and connect with government officials throughout the country and to spread good ideas and good policies that way without being the one guy in one city who's doing it. I, I want to ask you about that. I, I think the what you're talking about and sort of the triple bottom line and the convergence of technology and government is really interesting. But I but I want to first focus on this guaranteed income. And yeah, your city was one of the the leaders in it, and it has gotten you know real traction. Andrew Yang has obviously talked about it in presidential elections, and now as for running for mayor of New York, see it you know at some level being talked about in the child tax credit or in the, some COVID relief. What do you see as the likely future for this, for this policy initiative and, and where do you think it's going from here? Yeah, the Stockton findings come out March 3rd, which I think will be another significant marker into the conversation of the other things you mentioned. And I am more resolute than ever that at some point this country will have some form of a guaranteed income. Whether it's universal or targeted remains to be seen, but there will be some form of income floor for folks in this country. And for me, I think COVID-19 has really illustrated why that's going to happen, because it, it represents like a financial vaccine, as our, our researcher, Dr. Amy um, from University of Pennsylvania, calls it. And also because we live in a time of pandemics and kind of 
cash relief and income floor represents smart contingency planning. It allows us to build resilient communities, and we live in a time of pandemics. If it's not a health crisis, it's an earthquake. If it's not an earthquake, it's a flood. And a guaranteed income helps inoculate and allows students to prepare to persist during those calamities when that if they happen. So I am, and I mean, to your point, the major debate in Congress now about about COVID relief isn't about sort of whether there should be checks, but whether how big those checks should be, which is light years ahead of where we were two years ago with this notion of giving people money was seen as so antithetical to American values. So I'm excited about the future. And it's it's an interesting concept of it really being about it's often framed in the way of economic opportunity or as a safety net. But if you think about it in an age of resilience where, you know, you and I have experienced not only COVID, but fires impacting us, storms, electrical outages. I mean, we're seeing more and more. We've just seen it happen now in Texas and across the country. If you see it as, a, as an adaptation for climate change, that adds a really new component to it. Yeah, and it's funny. I didn't have that frame, really, until COVID and hearing stories from our residents and constituents who talked about how they weren't able to access unemployment insurance, uh, not because they didn't pay for it, because they didn't qualify, because the system wasn't working, and how the guaranteed income was what was necessary for them to persist and to be able to provide for their families. Or folks who talked about being laid off for two months and are being told to shelter in place for two weeks after having a fever and saying we would not have done so without sort of the $500 a month that we knew we would make up for our lost wages because we don't have paid time off. So, yeah, I think there's so many compelling arguments from sort of health impacts to labor market impacts. But I think the most current one, and I think the one that would resonate with a lot of people, is this notion of pandemic and, 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 and calamity response and contingency planning. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a big opportunity. I mean, hopefully some systemic changes come out of this pandemic because it's exposed so many of the flaws in our system or gaps in our system. I want to talk a little bit about Stockton. Our two communities are uh, bound together. I live very close to Stockton Avenue, which was uh, named as a marketing ploy to attract some of your residents to come to Santa Cruz on the hot days during the summer. And can you talk a little bit about the time between you when you ran, when you were 22 years old and serving on the council and mayor, your city has gone through bankruptcy, challenges, this guaranteed income, a lot of efforts to, to reduce violence. And I think there's lessons in all of those challenges and opportunities for, for other American cities. What, what do you hope other mayors and leaders uh, see from your experience in Stockton? Um, well, first of all, thank you for those kind words, supervisors. I love, I actually, <laughs> sidebar, I actually had Santa Cruz Pinot for the first time um, last October. And it's like the best Pinot I've ever had. I had no idea Santa Cruz Mountains brew wine. So another great thing about Santa Cruz, besides the boardwalk, besides the university, besides the weather, is like you guys also grow wine. It's like paradise. And I know they're lucky to have you there, have you there governing. But to answer your question, I think the lessons we, I hope people learn from Stockton is, number one, that the status quo is only the status quo because we allow it to be so. 
And that change isn't easy, but change also isn't impossible. And that leadership does matter. It, all it needs is all you need is a couple Catholic leaders to empower others to do their best work because one person can't do it by themselves. But also, I think it's also a, a, a cautionary tale in terms of politics is not just policy. I think we did a good job on the policy side, on the kind of metric side, on the type of improvement side, and we could have did a better job at sort of the politics side. And really, we should have grappled more deeply with issues of disinformation and misinformation and just being in a news desert, and we didn't discover that as a real vulnerability until it was too late. But I hope people also recognize from Stockton that leadership can come from anywhere, that, that leadership oftentimes can, be, can come from the folks most impacted by the problems. When I think of our work to reduce homicides by 40% in 2018, 2019, that was done by our police department for sure, but also, and probably more importantly, because there were new additions by folks who were impacted by gun violence, who were either victims or perpetrators of gun crimes themselves who decided that they would be part of our peacemaking efforts, right? And they were centered and viewed as leaders and viewed as solutions and not problems. So I think the same way, same thing with our guaranteed income work. And then the last thing I hope people are from Stockton is that you have to try. I used to tell my staff all the time, if the status quo is working, we're not going to touch that. That's fine. We don't want to mess up. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Or even if it's broke, but we can live with it, leave it alone. But if, the, if we can't live with the status quo, if the status quo is actually untenable, then we have a moral responsibility to do something about it, as long as we cause no harm. And that was sort of the ethos and the spirit behind all the different innovations of Stockton from our things people don't even know about. Like we have the first data center powered by water in Stockton at the port, which is one of the things I worked on before I left. The basic income, the gun violence reduction work, the Stockton Scholar Scholarship work, the partnership with the AmeriCorps to do creative career programming, all that was born out of an understanding that no one has the right answers or the answer, but we know that the problem is, is an issue. And, and I heard Brene Brown say it when she said, I would rather get it right I'm committed to getting it right, not being right. And that was sort of the energy we had behind our work in Stockton. It's like we know what's wrong, and we're committed to figuring out how do we get to right. And I think on most things, we did a pretty good job. Stockton had been battered by, you know, economic challenges, by bankruptcy. How did you inspire and energize city staff that may, you know, that I'm sure felt beaten down for many years of cuts and challenges, how did you inspire them to sort of engage and, and not only have to do the, their regular work, keeping a city running, but also, you know, these, these various initiatives that, that are, that were trials for the rest of the country. Yeah. I think part of it was just spending a lot of time building relationships with key middle management I think a lot of time was bringing in community partners and coalitions folks so that already stretched city staff didn't have to do even more. I think a lot of it, but I spent a lot of time like getting to know the people who were implementing things. Uh, one of my co-conspirators in City Hall was a guy named Christian Clay, who was assistant to the city manager and then assistant city manager. Um, and now he's the city manager at Bakersfield. Um, but we spent six years together 
Um, and he was my inside guy. And we would spend hours together brainstorming and talking and debating. And he was really one of the people that helped get the city staff on board. And then I did my best to build good relationships with my city managers and about how this was exciting. And, and then also I made sure to listen, because particularly in institutions, and you know this well, supervisors, where folks are, like even institutions that aren't performing well, oftentimes it isn't because people aren't working and are, or aren't working hard. <laughs> like in civil service, government jobs are oftentimes some of the most thankless and, 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 and difficult jobs. So just make, make sure people knew that I saw them, I saw their effort, I understood they were trying, and I'm upset about the outcomes, not about the people. Or at least I tried to. I mean, it worked for some people, it didn't work for others, but that was the approach I took. That makes a lot of sense. In order to to make a lot of these initiatives happen, it took a pretty serious philanthropic investment in you and your city. This is sort of a new reality when you talk to Libby Schaff up in Oakland, Robert Garcia down in Long Beach, of mayors as not only operating the city government, but actually, frankly, as like the fundraiser in chief uh, for their city. Can you talk a little bit about how you saw that and the pluses and minuses of that as a model for, for you know, a, a new generation of mayors? Yeah, I learned a lot from watching sort of mayors like Mayor Schaaf, Mayor Garcetti, Senator Booker, where he was mayor. So just given the challenges of Stockton and serving on city council as we and leading the audit committee as we were exiting bankruptcy, I just knew we didn't have we didn't have new money. There was no new revenues to do new, new things, and not to do new things at least in the interim, you have to start with the real philanthropy to catalyze and jumpstart. So. I think one of the weaknesses is that charity isn't policy and programs aren't policy. So I was, but what we did do was to use kind of topic dollars to prove policy and then do our best to connect it to policy. So for example, our advanced peace program, our gun violence reduction program, I raised the initial million, million for it philanthropically. But by year three, we were able to get some long-term funding from the state government through the Cal Violence Interruption Program grant. So it's things like that. We would use the philanthropy to start, to test case, and then find ways to connect it to government services and government dollars because, again, philanthropy is no replacement for government, but it can be helpful in catalyzing and pushing ideas forward. Can you talk about that Advanced Peace program? I mean, I think the basic income has gotten a lot of the attention, but the Advanced Peace Fellowship is really an incredible intervention to reduce violence and uh, probably needs to be to get the same amount of attention. Can you talk a little bit about how that worked and what the results you saw were? Yeah, and I think, Supervisor, you'll appreciate this. I learned about advanced peace from studying other cities and how they reduce violence. And I studied the Office of Neighborhood Safety in Richmond, and I saw this was a model that could work. And essentially, it's taking a public health approach to gun violence and saying that the folks most impacted by gun violence and that's victims and perpetrators aren't people who are going to show up for a city council meeting. They aren't people who are going to show up for a town hall on violence. They're not people who are going to show up because we call them, right? Like, so it's about finding credible messengers that can connect with them, build relationship with these young men, and then give them the same attention from resources and cognitive behavioral therapy um, and case management as they get from law enforcement. Because in Stockton, the majority, like over 90% of the people who have been, who are on our most likely to be victims or perpetrators of violent crime list 
They have been arrested on average eight times. They had a lot of engagement with a lot of our systems, from police to probation to, to jail, but our city wasn't safer. And using that data, connecting them with case managers and messengers, et cetera, and then, the, I mean, Devon Bogan, the founder, is probably get upset with me for not explaining it as well as he would, but there's also elements of it in terms of transforming the travel, the ability to see the world, and, and things of that sort. So big proponent, we use that program, and then we use the ceasefire program. I think those two things in tandem uh, has made the community safer. And when you saw that big drop in, in gun violence, talk about what that meant on the streets of Stockton for, you know, for the, especially for the, the kids, the Stockton scholars that you're initiative, uh, investing in, but just for the overall feel of the community. Well, first, it's personal for me. Um, I ran for office because my cousin was murdered in Stockton. So seeing the reduction in homicides made me thankful to God, like, wow, I'm here for a reason. I came back, and there's more people living. Um, I used that pain to kind of inform a, a perspective to make it safer for everyone. So I'm, that's that 40% reduction in 2018, 2019. It's probably the thing I'm proudest of in terms of my tenure as, as mayor. More people were literally alive, less retaliatory violence, less anxiety and stress in these neighborhoods, less gunshots at night, police officers free to do other things. And yeah, in 2018, 2019, you were the only two years in the entire 2000s that we had back-to-back years with less than 40 homicides. And per capita, because our population has grown since 2000, those are our two safest years for gun violence and homicides in this millennium. Wow. It's amazing. You started talking about your work since leaving office and sort of advising and connecting tech companies and government. What do you think technology companies need to know about government and what does government need to know about technology? Technology needs to know that every rule and regulation isn't bad and that government needs rules and regulations within reason to create guardrails because the most vulnerable, the most marginalized are, are most impacted by what government does and doesn't do. The tech community also has to understand that government failure has like real world implications. Like it's not just something like product crash and you just launch and iterate. Like we're talking about people's lives, like the, 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 the health of the water they drink, right? The safety of their roads, et cetera. So there has to be a little bit of caution. Government can learn from tech or should know about tech is that tech folks are reasonable. So just because you don't know something doesn't mean you say no. Take the time to think about the boundaries you have and within reason what, what operate in the space of what's possible. Right? It doesn't have to be no, we can't do anything because we can't do everything. And, and view it as a negotiation, like, hey, we can't do all this, but maybe you could try this idea in this with, with, with these certain parameters, et cetera. And government also has to know that tech is almost as ubiquitous as government. So you, we have to be quick and nimble and iterative in terms of policy because tech is just moving and innovating at a, at a speed that far outpaces what government's able to do. And I think we saw that in California with Prop 22, where we had this fight where you had these companies who created a, another classification or argued they created another classification of workers and a government that was slow and 
and responding with a universal benefits like healthcare or in, in retirement or guaranteed income and B or portable benefits, et cetera. And you saw this tension play out in this crazy initiative, which now gives the tech companies, at least in California, the ability to, to, to lock us in this failing policy status quo as it goes to, to gig workers for the next several years, if not decades. So I think there's just a, oftentimes it's, folks just talk past each other and they'll understand that both are actually about the same thing and that's really optimizing for the best results for society in, in most cases. <laughs> Traditionally, tech companies, and especially in the Bay Area, you know, they tend to develop products for to solve wealthier people's problems in wealthier communities yeah, and haven't spent a lot of time thinking about underserved or disadvantaged communities. Do you think they're starting to see the opportunities that are there in creating products for everyone? Yeah, I think some companies have done that from the beginning, but to your point, I think the field as a whole has to be more focused on solving societal problems because tech only works when there's a society in which to, <laughs> to, to operate. If we don't figure out climate change, if we don't figure out disinformation, we're just not going to have a society. Or we won't have a civil society. And I think, I was talking about Reed Hoffman the other day, and we, he talked about how kind of good civil society is good for business, that you need healthy democratic systems, that you need an informed citizenry, you need sort of folks not being sick in order for businesses to prosper and thrive. And, and I absolutely think that more and more folks will think about their work as to sort of how do we not just innovate a product, but how do we innovate a society in which products can be part of a, a healthy ecosystem where folks are able to enjoy it and they're not imminent, looming, and impending existential threats all the time. So let's, let's talk about a uh, market failure that uh, had an impact on your life, which is this disinformation campaign that, that was launched in a sort of vacuum of no local news and people to establish what facts are. <laughs> Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? And then are there solutions that you're thinking of so that we can have an informed citizenry? Yeah, it's, it's the most bizarre story. But essentially, in Stockton, I see of 315,000 people. There's one newspaper. And our broadcast network is actually based in Sacramento. So there's no like stock like Sacramento's the branch and they stock is part of their footprint even though we're an hour away and over three hundred thousand people and we made the mistake which is funny because I'm so young but we made the mistake of thinking sort of traditional media like the newspaper national newspapers television series television shows local news that was how you can how we could communicate with the public because if you Google any of those credible re messengers, you won't find anything scandalous, anything controversial, just actually reporting on what was done and what wasn't done. But in the absence of, of that, there's a, a, a disinformation website that was created, our Facebook page, called 209 Times. And what they did is they preyed on sort of the gullibility of some folks in our community who still to this day view them as a news site. But they're not a news site. They're a Facebook page that spews disinformation and, and, and optimizes for ad revenue by posting pictures of homeless people, posting pictures of fires, and doing that several times a day. 
So essentially for four years while we were working and doing good work and sort of objectively making the city better, every day for four years they would target people and feed them lies rooted in sort of bias and racism. So they would say things like, Michael Tubbs is stealing money from the city. And again, understanding in Stockton, I'm the first black mayor, right? <laughs> like, and it's not because I was the only black person since 1850 who was qualified to be mayor, but because it's like institutional racism. That's how you get the first in 2020. And I mean, for a lot of people, they believe it. Oh, he's young, he's black, of course he's stealing. And I say that because there's no evidence that I stole because I didn't. In fact, I brought money to the city, over $100 million. Um, but so, that, so that was one. The other one was um, he doesn't work. He's lazy, which is, again, another racist trope people have against black people, that black people are lazy. So he's not working. He's lazy. He's always on vacation, which, again, is objectively impossible because if I was always on vacation, how is there an hour, 10-minute long HBO documentary of being in Stockton? <laughs> I caught Stockton on my mind, right? And they did that for four years and literally every single day, three times a day, a story that fit in one of those ropes and completely fabricated and made up stories or completely like taking one thing and just making all these generalizations or assumptions that were not true. And there was no check on them. So it, it just became truth. It became the default. And they continued to grow in a mass. And as they grew in a mass, they kept targeting and targeting. And now you can walk in Stockton today and talk to people and they'll say, we like Maritels, we wish he didn't steal from us. And there's no, like, again, I, if I stole, I would be in jail. <laughs> so, but in terms of your answer, I think policy solutions, Facebook has to be held accountable. I mean, you see this not just with my race, you see it with COVID vaccinations, you see it with the January 6th insurrection. Like, it, it, it's sick and it's happening on Facebook because they're, algorithm optimizes for hate, for racism, for division. That's how you get clicks. That's how you get eyeballs. That's how you loop people in. So there has to be some sort of fact-checking. I think what Twitter did, I don't know what Facebook did, because I don't want to get on Facebook. I think what Twitter did during the election was a good start. I'm just flagging claims that this is actually not true. I think Facebook should have some sort of verification process for, like, news sources versus opinion sources and let people know this is actually not a news site, it's an opinion site, despite the fact it says news. I think there has to be some sort of data dividend or data tax, and some of it has to go to funding kind of local journalism, local objective journalism. And I think bad actors have to be held accountable. Like, you shouldn't be allowed to to create lies, create slander, create libel, even if it is against an elected official, and there's not any way to hold it accountable, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just... it seems as an elect as a fellow elected official, like am I supposed to spend my entire day fighting with people who are <laughs> trolls and who don't engage in factual arguments? Like you're sort of stuck because you either ignore them to your peril or you engage with them. And who wants to spend their whole day on a thankless, pointless debate? It's it's a very it's a very troubling phenomenon. That, that sort of undermines democracy. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that was the tension, right? It was like, do we do less work? Do I create my own media site? <laughs> like, do I, like, what, like, do I spend all day responding to, like, just dumb lies, like lies that just can't be true? 
or do I govern? And we made the wrong decision in this instance. And we thought that facts would win, that people would see above their biases or above their emotions and actually be curious about what's real and what's not. I had no idea that people actually believe everything they read on Facebook. You know, you hear that, but I didn't think it was real. And at least in the case of Stockton, for a lot of people in the community, it was real. And afterwards, people have emailed saying, I'm so sorry, I was a bullet for you, I didn't know, I believe this stuff. It's, it's, it's really sad. And, I mean, I just feel bad for the city, right? Like, I think I'm, I'm more than okay. I'm great. <laughs> like, life is still good. But I, I do feel bad for the city, particularly during this time, without having sort of the experienced leadership, but also just not having a, a body politic that's going to be able to, in my opinion, come together and address some of these real challenges when folks are believing conspiracy theories. And, and can't decipher real from not real and good from bad. Yeah, it also has to impact, and I don't know if you're already seeing it in Stockton, you know, people are willing to serve. It's already hard enough to ask people to run, especially for local office, to because they have to balance jobs and, you know, just living. And then there are hard debates and hard choices that have to be made. But then to sort of open yourself up to conspiracy theorists is a whole different level of uh, of asking people to to, <laughs> to essentially do this volunteer work while them and their family is being attacked. So many people saw what happened over the last four years. They're like, I'm never running for office here. And I keep trying to tell them, no, it's worth it. No, it's worth it. You can do a lot of good. But, I mean, I, get, I also get that too. Like, why would I go subject myself to literal abuse no one signs up to be like what it's it's so crazy such myself to abuse not see my family and just deal with and just, just fighting upstream like and, I, and so i get why a lot of people are turned off although i would still argue that that's how we lose when we don't engage when we don't fight when we don't put ourselves in the arena and elected official life as i'm a testament to is not forever it's like a tour of duty. Sign up for your tour of duty if you're listening and you're not elected yet. Four years, eight years, just do a little bit of time. We need everyone to be involved in governance so we have good governance. Or if not, we'll continue to see a lot of dysfunctions we're seeing playing out in Congress and at the local level. Let's hope so. Let's hope people stick with it. Yeah, because it's, it's, surrender is not really an option. So let me ask... At all. <laughs> let me ask, what's next for you? I know you are... I, I, and I believe you, you're crazy busy right now. What do you see in your future, both both politically and personally? Yeah, I think I will be involved in California, particularly on issues around reducing poverty, increasing opportunity on economic mobility. I continue to be working on guaranteed income. I'll be supporting sort of leaders and candidates and electeds who are bold and, and visionary and forward-thinking in their policies. I may be doing some commentating and contributing for TV. I have a book coming out this fall. Maybe do some private sector stuff as well. So just a lot, just taking up a lot of space and doing, doing all, all the things. So I think they're all necessary to kind of push our communities forward. All those things are incredibly important, and I want to just I just want to say how grateful I am. You're a neighboring city and to be able to have watched you both on the city council and then as mayor, it was it's inspirational. And I'm looking forward to sort of seeing these initiatives when you when you are not limited to one city, but you actually can serve 
cities around the world, I think it's going to make a tremendous impact. And I um, just want to thank you for your service and for taking the time to talk to us today. No, no, thank you, Supervisor. And I love the New Deal Network. One of the best parts of being an elected official is that you meet some truly remarkable people who are serving in local governments or state governments. And some of my best friends now are mayors I served with, um, some of my biggest confidants, um, and, 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 and networks like New Deal, et cetera. So thank you for your leadership, Supervisor, and thank you, New Deal, for the convening and the, and the community you've built. Um, which is important, particularly when you're leaving, because it could be so lonely. When your book comes out this fall, hopefully we can have you back. My family owns the independent bookstore here in Santa Cruz, so if you want to come over, take your kid to the boardwalk and have an event at Bookshop, we'd love to have you. Oh, we're, we're in. Done. And, and we'll get you some of our famous uh, wine, at least the, what, the, some of the wine that survived the fires. I did not know it was famous. This is such a well-kept secret. Yeah, yeah, no, it's amazing. Uh, it's a it's a whole appellation, and I don't understand the science of it, but I do know, yeah, there's good wine coming out of the Santa Cruz Hills. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, well, uh, thank you. Take care of yourself. I really appreciate you taking the time. All right, sounds good. Thank you. All right, take care. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. Mm-hmm.